0: back to The Real Professional Podcast. Uh, I have a pretty cool guest on today. Um, it's something I actually, like, I put out, like, a general call to try to talk to uh, a video game lawyer. And it, it took, like, a, a little while for uh, us to be able to, to scrounge one up. But uh, luckily, we're here today with uh, Max Leitman. He is the COO and General Counsel of Servios. Uh, it's like a VR company, correct? Yeah, we make, uh, VR, make and distribute VR content. VR yeah. Games. And um, so we were we were kind of talking at the beginning of uh, you know in our pre-show like little discussion, and you mostly focus on like contract law and stuff, right? Yeah, I would
1: describe myself as a business lawyer. I started my career um, working for very big corporate law firms—the kind of ones you think about when you you think of sort of the firm—and um, <laughs> and eventually sort of transitioned into having a more operational roles in film, entertainment, and technology. And currently, I'm at Servius, where I'm the general counsel and chief operating officer. Uh, Servius makes and distributes virtual reality games. We think of ourselves as the leading company in the world in using engineering, design, talent, and, and tool sets to enable presence in VR, which is really when you feel like you've lost the sense that you're in VR, but you feel like you're just inhibiting a totally other world.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so my first question is, and I was literally just thinking about this outside, like before we started. Uh, if I were to sign a three-year licensing contract, and I signed that contract on February twenty-ninth, would the three years be up on what, what day would it actually be up? We, well, what you're talking about if it says
1: the term starts on February 20 and, and and it the answer depends on how it's written. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Some agreements might say the the agreement starts, oh, you're talking about because of leap year. Yes. Uh, People usually, people, you know, it doesn't come up that often. If if it said February 29th and you said the three, it depends how you would would write that, Mm -hmm. honestly, but a court would probably just, if you said three years, interpret that as, you know, February 28th or the day afterwards.
0: Yeah, Uh, I'm, I'm just imagining some, like, weird, like, a corporate case where it's like this game just had this massive spike in sales the day of March, like, 1st, and they're like, okay, well, do we owe for this or not based on that sales spike or something like that? Yeah, look, in the law, I think that's what we would call an edge case, right? So <laughs> um,
1: the issue, and I think this is just really instructive uh, problem for your audience as they're trying to think about it, and I think it's actually a great way into this broader discussion, which is as a person in the world trying to do deals and make arrangements with people and do contracts with somebody, you can think through every education scenario, but like anything in life, the more you do that, the more the contracting process is expensive and takes, you know, it becomes laborious and takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think the place as a lawyer you can really add some value is having a sense of, what risks your clients are willing to tolerate, what edge cases are probably not worth discussing about because they're so remote, or the outcome is just not that material either way, that, that it probably makes sense to just focus on getting the deal done, mm-hmm. and which edge cases are actually not really as edge as you would think and, and really important, and the results can be calamitous, and you actually do have to focus on. And so the example you just gave me, about, like, essentially leap year and how that's dealt with in contracts. Mm-hmm. The truth is, like, that's not that, unless you really write it in a really, really bizarre way, that's not that calamitous. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, if you're actually entering into an agreement on February 29th, you're probably, as a lawyer, going to think about that. And if you didn't, it would, you know, you're really missing a pretty obvious issue. And you would describe that, although the agreement's entered into on February 29th, it will end on February 20, you know, be three years ending on such and such date, three years from now, how a court would interpret that. I honestly have no idea if there's any case law about it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the, the, what I'm getting from your question is sort of, how do you deal with really remote edge cases? Um, and I think there, that's the balancing act of, of sort of making business deals in general.
0: Mhm. Well, so that's actually like a really it's, it's a good leaping off point to the question of, you know, how do you balance like you said the 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 actual cost of writing up these rather lengthy uh, entertainment law contracts with the actual like, you know, the the amount of risk that you're mitigating by writing said contracts because there's always going to be things that come up over the course of that you didn't, you know, expect.
1: Uh and I think there the answer is just experience, and it's not everything is incredibly uh, case specific. And so I'll give you an example. We had one of our financiers the other day ask me to talk to one of uh, his portfolio companies who was thinking about opening up a satellite office in China. I, I've had a lot of experience working in China, setting up businesses in China, and so forth, and the guy who ran the company was a great guy. He was an engineer. And he was sort of, sort of, you know, saying like, look, I'll call my guy at my law firm. They have a China guy and he'll tell me what to do. And then, and then, you know, I'll follow what they say. What I told him was, you are an amazing engineer, but you're not a great consumer of legal services. Mm-hmm. So, China is incredibly complex, who your partner is, is incredibly complex. You need somebody to sort of like an internal person to project manage it. Who's an intelligent consumer of legal services. Mm-hmm. Cause at the end of the day, outside counsel isn't going to necessarily understand all your business fully. Um, they're not going to understand what risks you can take and can't take and how to explain those in ways that are manageable and digestible. And so, that's, I know that having inside counsel is a luxury that a lot of small companies can't afford. But I do think it's really important to find a lawyer early on who's willing to put the time in to actually understand the business you're in and the risks you're trying to take and what's important to you as a business person mm-hmm. so that they can help you make those decisions. Okay. And I would say there's a, ma- a really magical thing in law. Where you're not so old that your brain's not working as well as it once did, but you're not so young that you don't have any experience because experience really matters. Um, wisdom really matters in those contexts because unless you've seen a contract play out or seen various contracts play out over the course of years and had the experience of doing many, many deals, it takes a long time to develop that kind of gut.
0: So obviously, like you know, you're, what you're saying makes sense. You know, if you're a mid, uh, even like a large company, large to mid-sized company, um, like it, the the moment you can't afford a lawyer that's going to be able to like negotiate these contracts, especially overseas contracts, like that's going to be really important to have. But a ton of like independent solo developers like don't have those kinds of funds, you know. Um, and so where where can they go to get uh, legal advice that isn't you know R slash ask a lawyer? You know, it's really hard.
1: first of all I think it's really important for those people to educate themselves Mm -hmm. because I will tell you this like for most people hiring a lawyer is like hiring a plumber Mm -hmm. meaning that they don't actually know how to do their own plumbing and so really whether or not they have a good lawyer is somewhat of a leap of faith because they don't know how to evaluate whether they're a good lawyer or bad lawyer and so Usually, the things that most clients use to value lawyers, particularly unsophisticated lawyers and I th- unsophisticated clients, and I think that's sort of what you're getting at there, mm-hmm. is they are cons- you know they're they're very focused on how quick they are, which is incredibly important. They're very focused on how much they like them, how much they like their personal style, how erudite they are. None of those things necessarily matter, or none of those necessarily things are things that make the difference, and so. Part of it is getting laws. There's a great game. There's a great book, I think, called Video Game Law in a Nutshell. It's written for lawyers that basically just has a primer on video game law. Mm -hmm. I think that any developer who is doing contracts, even if they can't afford a lawyer, would be really remiss just not to get that basic law uh, book. Because you can pick it up and you can, if you have a question about copyright, turn to the copyright section and read it yourself. And it might not be a perfect perfect, – Substitution for having a lawyer, but at least you're going to educate yourself about how to think mm-hmm. about it. And so that's one thing. I don't think unfortunately there's a great resource for people who can't afford lawyers to do contracts <laughs> um, There just isn't uh, obviously you have to read it yourself and have your own native smarts and do research, but you, you really at the end of the day. There's an old saying. I think it goes something like if you think if you think paying for you know, really good legal advice is expensive. Try the alternative. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. Hey, so, so I think that, I think that's sort of it. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, you know, okay. I, I'm going to open it up. J- Jesse or Remy, do you have any questions before I go on to anything else?
2: Well, a lot of my questions are going to be about VR. Uh, I don't know if you want to continue on with the legal side of things right now.
0: Oh, yeah. So when we jump into the VR stuff, um, which we'll get to in, in, in a minute here. Um, but I, I do I, I kind of just want to uh, ask, you know, with with so right now I have, you know, when I get my emails for the day doing the press side of things, because, you know, I'm a I'm a journalist. I I do all that shit. And I, I get a zillion emails from all these different uh, countries. And they and I, I, I always think that, like. The the contracting complexities for working between, you know, like a Polish studio with their law versus cause um you know I I, uh, I have a lot of friends that work at Bloober Team. They just did the Blair Witch game. And I was just thinking, like, I wonder what the licensing agreement was like to use Blair Witch for this game, you know, who owns the property of the game versus who owns what portions of the property from the movie and you know all this like complexities of, of the legal side of things. And I was just kind of wondering like, you know, in your, in your personal work, what's kind of the most complex, weird dealings you've had to deal with? Um,
1: You know, it's like anything else, to be honest, like the most complex things are never the intellectual legal issues you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. People are messy. And if you put a bunch of them in an endeavor together and that's how they're making a living and they're sort of, competing for contracts and competing for, for dollars and to make good products. Uh, all the complexity has to do with dealing with people. And that's true. On the by the way, that's a hundred percent true on the legal side as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually think the best way to handle that. And it's true of everything is in order to properly or most effectively negotiate any kind of commercial arrangement with something, somebody, you have to understand where their pain points are, what's motivating them and what they're sort of what what they're trying to get out of the arrangement Mm -hmm. because then you can figure out how to solve their problems. Uh, There's some stuff for instance, you know, that like if you're doing a deal with a Hollywood studio, you're never going to get them to compromise on three or four issues. And so you're just wasting a lot of time talking about them. You just have to know that those are things that you're always going to have to, you know, take take on risk around. And if you don't want to do that, you probably just should move on and do a different, you know, pursue a different opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people spend a lot of time trying to change hearts and minds that are not unchangeable.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it, it does. It's just – um <laughs> my I wanted no it, it's not it's not that not the answer I wanted it's just that you know this is often the case when it comes to uh complex issues is there's there's a very big difference between the written in stone like legal law and the complexities of dealing with like human beings you know yes look in terms of the law I would say
1: the laws is around, like if you, like the core basket of intellectual property laws that sort of matter in our world, copyright, patent, trademark, trade secret laws, right? And you kind of ask, what are all of those things actually designed to protect? Like why do we have copyright laws? Why do we have patent laws? Um, and at core, the underlying reason you have all of those laws is you want to incentivize people who create things to be able to monetize the things they create because otherwise there's no real financial incentive to create or at least that's how the argument goes um, mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of interesting data by the way about how you know knockoff products actually help industries in certain cases and it's looking worth looking at but really at core that's that's the foundation of intellectual property law mm-hmm. and then there's limits to that right so like if you have a patent for instance to a great new drug that doesn't list, that doesn't live forever because after some period of time uh, at least the US government thinks that okay that should be opened up so that generic makers can can sell that product for less money mm-hmm. um, and i would say once you kind of understand why you have that framework and structure the question is how do I – How what are the edges? How do I push that? How do I get the most – how do I sort of like get the most juice out of the squeeze in terms of how I have those laws benefit me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, honestly, there's – I'll give you an example of something that I think is kind of funny. I feel like, for instance, NDAs are incredibly overused.
2: <laughs>
1: Nobody's <laughs> willing to sit down and have a conversation with anybody else unless they sign an NDA. And I sort of feel like in – in our lifetime, they've kind of, kind of become the, uh, you know, the adult version of a pinky swear, uh, where, where, you know, at this point, people sign them because it just feels like it's best practice without really thinking much about it for the most part. Uh, where I would say, 50, at least fifty percent of the meetings we have that are under that are that are under NDA have no real reason to be under NDA. But that's just what people do. Um, and it's an example of like customs and norms and complexity building around how to manage all these people in sticky situations.
0: Mm-hmm. And there is – there are limits to like – even if you have someone sign an NDA, like it's – there are limits to like what an NDA can actually, you know, like can actually prohibit you from talking about in what situations and like – Oftentimes people will sign an NDA and not realize that like the actual construction of the structure of the NDA is not like entirely legal. Look, it's not,
1: it's not legal or not legal. It's just a question of what's enforceable. And by the way, what the cost of enforcement is, right. What you could prove. uh, I think they have more sort of, I think they have more benefit for the most part, not always, but they have more benefit In terms of just setting expectations for people going into meetings, Mm -hmm. um, meaning that they just know they're sort of the stakes are a little higher. They have a business meeting, you know, they're, they're, this is official. They should sort of keep things private. But yeah, I mean, there are very, very few examples of people actually enforcing NDAs or getting big judgments. The, uh, the, the, obvious exa- the obvious exception to that is the case with Facebook and Bethesda around the purchase of
0: Oculus. Um, around the purchase of what? Of Oculus. Oh, okay. Uh,
1: there was a big NDA issue in that case, and there was a large uh, public judgment around it. Um, but that's really the exception. there are not there, There's not a lot of examples about that.
0: Mm-hmm. So for a large studio, how many ongoing legal battles do you think they're going through at any one time that people just don't know about, like even including small ones? What do you, What's your definition of a legal battle? Uh, oh, wow. That's such a lawyer answer for you. <laughs> I'm just asking, like, generally, you know, like, how many issues do you think, like, something like EA or Activision is going through at any one time? And you're like, well, what's the definition of a legal battle? I don't mean, like, in court. I mean, like, uh, uh, that they're currently pursuing some kind of either cease and desist or they're taking some kind of action or having oh. action taken against them.
1: I don't think there's any way to like. I don't. Th- I mean, look. You could look at a company's number of employees or revenue, and sort of extrapolate what you think the legal department would be and what kind of you know, what kind of issues they're digesting. The truth is, it really depends on what kind of content they're putting out. I will say, generally, when you're making very very expensive intellectual property, the one thing you never want to do, ever 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 want to do is be in a position where somebody can stop you from making it. So all film companies, all TV companies, really all video game companies for the most part, will have a provision in their contract saying that no matter what happens between me and you, you can't stop me from commercially releasing the game. Just because if if you can imagine if you're releasing Call of Duty and somehow somebody had a reasonable lawsuit that could stop you from releasing it, that's a disaster, right? That's a disaster that you can't really fix. So, so the, those are that's sort of the big ticket item. Other than that, it really varies tremendously from company to company. For a small studio like us, honestly, like we try to minimize any opportunity to have legal, you know, battles or disagreements with people. And and if we do, we try to get through them as quickly as we can, if if that's at all possible, because you really want to focus on your core product and and building stuff and contracts are really sort of setting expectations between partners more than battles.
0: Yeah, no, that makes actually, that makes a lot of sense, especially, yeah, you're trying to work together and any kind of legal battle is going to be because it's going to be rarer. It's rarer to breach a contract than it is to fulfill one, you know?
1: Yeah. And the truth is like the vast majority of contracts, people never look at after they sign. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) That is true. There's some, there's some exceptions to that. Like every business at some point is going to go back and look at their office lease. Uh-huh. Right. It's just like I don't know anybody who's ever rented an office for a number of years and at some point hasn't like went back and looked at it to make sure that the move out date was the right date or there was some rent provision. But but other than that, for the most part, it's it's – I'd say 80 percent
0: of contracts are signed and people never go back and look at them. Mm-hmm. How actually enforceable is the end user license agreement? You know, that
1: is a conversation for. That's a, that's a much longer conversation, and I'd say it depends on the end user license agreement. I know that's why everybody hates lawyers because they give an uh-huh. answers that, but it's really true. Uh, I I would say, I would say, uh, generally speaking. It's like the don't be a jerk standard. Mm -hmm. Like there's some pretty strict rules around privacy that you have to follow, and everybody pretty much knows the rules of the road for them. Um, But by and large, if you think you're going to get a consumer to opt into something that's completely fair, unfair, and then it's going to have some really positive impact for you and really negative impact for consumer, and over time, that's not going to get chipped away at uh, I think that's a re- reasonable expectation for business in the world.
0: Yeah, I've just always, cause, you know, entering into a contract does require that someone is, like, of, you know, sufficient mind to actually enter into a contract. And I think that by the time you reach the end of an end user license agreement, you're clinically insane. So I don't even think I could accept at that point.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've never seen the statistics about the, like, percentage of people that actually read through them. <laughs> uh, but, and it's funny because invariably, there are always people who read through them. And, like, I'll know, for instance, at some point we got some really negative comments about some of our, uh, you know, standard sort of consumer-facing legal legalese. And it just made me laugh because I understood why the guy was mad. But the analysis was just all wrong. And, and you know, I think in those circumstances, for me, like, my, my theory on that, at least, the company, is, like, I just want to be plain vanilla. Say that like, again. I just want to be plain vanilla. Mm, okay. Maybe, look, if you can leave it to the huge platforms like the Googles and the Facebooks of the world to really like look to create value on edge cases around end-user license agreements, uh, for any developer that's not literally like one of the largest companies in the world, I think you're I think you're kind of wasting your time. Mm-hmm.
0: So, can you explain what you mean by that? By cre- uh, by creating value around the edge cases.
1: I just mean, like you can imagine, like for instance, like a company, you know, like a, a really big media or tech company which has a huge consumer-facing or a huge online community, for instance, right?
0: Uh huh.
1: They might really want to push some of the, you know, push some of how they deal with privacy, or really like they can afford a very expensive lobbying campaign to uh, to to sort of push the envelope in terms of what kind of data they're able to collect and what they can do with it. Mm -hmm. For a small company, you know, you're not going to fight those battles. You're just going to kind of follow the rules Mm -hmm. Um, for the most part, I think. It depends what your business is, obviously, but certainly for us, like we're making video games. And certainly, like, there's things we can do with consumer data to the extent we collect it. But we're not trying to, like, that's not the core value proposition of our company and that's not where we're going to sort of create innovation.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the VR questions, Jesse, did you have any legal
3: questions you wanted to bring up? Hey. Um, I Nothing really specific. I was just wondering, like, so, you know, in regards to, like, new technology, the government is usually, like, 30 years behind. Huh. So, you know, do you see, like, the the legal landscape of video games changing anytime soon. Like I know that the, like there's starting to be a little focus on um, like loot boxes and stuff. That's something that I noticed recently. I don't know if there's any other like big holes in video game law that you're aware of.
1: Yeah. I'm assuming there you're focusing on the United States with your
3: question. Um, And
1: I certainly would agree with you in terms of I was laughing because I was watching some of the uh, impeachment hearings that were recently on. They were talking about in the Senate, I think you could only drink water, sparkling water and milk. Hilarious. Uh, And that just made me think about you're like you're 100 percent right. Like that just felt so quaint and from another generation. Government is government is inherently reactionary. And at least on the federal level where you have a split Congress where the Republicans control the Senate and the Democrats control the House and the president's a Republican, um, it's very hard to advance legislation. So I don't think there's a lot of action coming, at least from like new legislation being passed. And we are at least in a a regulatory environment now where the current administration is trying to deregulate. So I'd say at least for the next year, I don't expect anything that would, would have an impact for the most part. Um, that's a little bit different on the for different state for different states. Obviously, we're in California, and California just created created new privacy legislation that that functionally to the extent you're actually required to follow it. If you're a gaming company, I don't know any gaming companies that decide not to offer their products to Californians. Um, so that can have, you know the the state and other sort of you know other countries, laws can have, have import, but I don't, I don't actually, at least from my end in terms of like the regulatory framework, see anything that's going to radically change the industry. I think places where it will is you can look at recently China in the last few years has really started to take a hard look at whether mobile gaming is, is good for the citizenry and, and what, what sort of responses they might have to that. So it just depends on a country by country basis how important that country is to you and and what you think that the the environment might be.
3: Mm-hmm. No, not really. Uh, I don't know. Have you played anything else recently? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use use that to plug one of our own games. Uh,
1: You know, if you haven't played, I don't know if you guys played VR, but we made a boxing game in VR called Creed Rise to Glory. Mm -hmm. So much fun because for me at core VR is about wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about wish fulfillment and like the opportunity to like go like fight as Mr. T and beat up Rocky is just so much fun. (laughs) Uh, And it's a great workout. And and so I highly recommend it. Other than that, uh, I promised my son I haven't played it yet. That we would, I would, I'd play Monster Legends with him this weekend because one of his buddies is loves the game and he wants to try it. He's seven years old,
3: Aww. so
1: they eight years old. So we're going to give it a try. Uh, and and so th- that that's what's been on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, um, Remy Remy over here, the other host, actually uh, develops VR games.
2: So oh, awesome. Yep. Yeah, Creed is really fun. Uh, I'm also, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the other game. You have a, a DJ game. Electronauts. Yeah, uh, that game as well. Uh, looks, looks super fucking cool. It's, um, super, super fun. And I'll tell you what, after the podcast, if you don't have one, we'll definitely send you a key. Oh, oh, that's, that's so nice. Dude, uh, I know you're in LA. I, I hope before I get into the, uh, the, the VR questions, I wanted a couple business questions. You mind asking, like, how many employees does Servios have? Serpius has, uh, you know, about 100 employees. 100 employees. So in terms of especially conversation around a lot of indie devs that are around L.A., uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, as someone who's operating not the biggest company, but a fairly large uh, studio, what do you think about the chatter about unionizing the video game industry?
1: Um, so, so, I mean, it's a... I, I, I've heard a lot about it. Um, obviously i'm on the, I'm a lawyer and on the management side of it, so it doesn't really, like it's not it doesn't impact me. I don't you know I don't know. I probably would have to I'd have to think a lot more about it. I come from the traditional entertainment and film world. That was my previous work. I produced a bunch of movies. Um, my wife is an actress and she's in SAG. so so I'm pretty familiar with working in a unionized environment. Um, I think there's positives and negatives, I think it depends on, honestly, the studio. It depends how you treat your employees, uh, what kind of environment you have, whether you offer fair wages. I know, at least for Servios, we put a lot of thought and effort into making sure that we treat our employees well. It's a big part of my job. Um, a lot of that is just connecting with people and speaking with them, I think, and like hearing their concerns. Uh, so I don't, I don't really have a great answer to that question. I think it's a case-by-case case question, a person-by-person person question. Uh, I think I will say this. For a smaller company like Servios, who is fighting to sort of be, a, a, you know, and we think doing a great job of being like a really relevant player in VR, which is an emerging market, to the extent that unions would raise the cost of creating content it's going to limit our ability to sort of fight that fight. That's for sure true. And so it's really a matter of trade-offs.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the landscape of VR, especially now Um, in terms of when it was like first kicking off around 2012, 13, 14, and uh, the period of time where we're here now, where we've got these new gen headsets that uh, uh, are different form factor, or much more powerful. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about the, the present uh, landscape for for VR, both from the consumer side and from people who are or have VR companies.
1: Well, look, I think from a consumer side, it's never been more accessible and there's never been more sort of interesting good content. So really, I feel like the primary retail platforms, are PlayStation and the Oculus Quest. Uh, Obviously the reach of PlayStation's console units and having a peripheral like VR has been really important to our marketplace. And the Quest, which is essentially priced similarly to a Switch and uh, is really convenient and fun, is a great consumer device. So I feel like we're really for the first time in our industry having a a sort of real, real sort of uh, Depth of consumer devices are available that have great content and to me that's going to lead to significant growth over time Uh, I think that pc vr where you're tethered to a pc Uh Is going to probably end up being more of a niche market over time is my instinct Um people who really want to squeeze out that more performance until like the mobile pr P, mobile mobile vr and the the console vr sort of catch up in terms of how high powered they are. So for me, it's not so much what's the highest power device. It's what gets a great VR experience into a consumer's hand for a great price point. That's convenient because uh, if you just took a picture of all the wires that you had to sort of hook up and install and, and everything you had to put together to have VR work, um,
2: it's miserable. The
1: beginning of the industry and then took a picture of an Oculus Quest. You know, even with the performance trade-offs, my guess is even some of the most hardcore hardcore techies would choose the Oculus Quest just for convenience.
2: A and lot so, of VR companies have been saying that that kind of form factor was the real limiting factor for consumer adoption. Would you agree with that? Um, I I'm not one of those
1: people who likes to put 100% meaning on any one particular thing. I think it's hugely important, the form factor. I think it's going to continue to get better. I also think, you know, not having enough good software in the marketplace was really important. Uh, I think that, you know, it the thing about tech adoption is you hear about a new thing, particularly consumer-facing new thing, and it feels like it's going to sweep the world immediately. And the adoption curve is actually much slower over time. And so for me, I think VR is in a great place. Uh, I think there's a lot of great, great games out there. There's a lot of great companies out there making games. There's some really big players who are committed to growing their platforms, which we're super excited about. And all of those things, I think, lead to long-term health. I feel like we're still probably in the second, second inning.
2: Second inning. That's very interesting. Now, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about the business operations side. What, what do you see for like a, as someone who owns a VR company, the future of VR. Um,
1: well, in terms of the future of VR, I think I think it's you know if you if you sort of study like people as they were first creating the industry, like what what everybody wanted, it was at least on the gaming side, everybody wanted to step into a game. And for me, the core of it is presence and wish fulfillment. So, what makes you forget you're in VR and you're just kind of having an experience? That's presence. And wish fulfillment. How do I live in a world that I've always wanted to live in or do a thing that I've always wanted to do that wasn't achievable before? And I feel the more VR enables that and the more it becomes fun and natural and intimate, I think the more it's just going to take off. And I feel like we're really, really well positioned for that. So I'm super excited for the future of VR. Uh, I, I think that one of the interesting things is at the beginning of the Internet, Right. And the Internet's evolved this way as it it was in a lot of ways, a completely anonymous medium, right? You didn't really know who was online. And that started to change when you had big social media companies come along, obviously, just jumping into one like Facebook, where you could have a lot of photo sharing and you kind of could hook up with your friends online, made it a little bit less anonymous. One of the really nice things about VR is that it's it's as you interact with people in VR, it's much more intimate you're inhibiting an avatar and your movements kind of matter um even though it's anonymous i think it's going to feel less anonymous and i think that people will feel much more connected through a digital medium um and i think there's all sorts of opportunities and gaming will be at the forefront much in the same way that mmos were sort of the first real social networks if you look at you know the original mmos like everquest or uh, world of warcraft or so forth i think that um I think that the first social networks in VR that really emerge and have meaning are going to be around gaming as well. And I think that's incredibly powerful and excited for it.
2: You know, there's, there's oftentimes, uh, especially like 2017, 2018, the term XR was, was quite common, right. To, to sort of combine VR and AR. Uh, do you believe that those two are still sort of like intermingled or do you think that they've, uh, kind of separated? I'm sorry, could you just repeat that question? Sure. So, uh, a lot of people around 2017, 2018, they use the term XR to talk about VR and AR as sort of like the, uh, the, the same sort of like wheelhouse, right? Same, same kit and caboodle. Uh, do you think that the, someone who owns a VR company that you would also still, uh, focus on the development of AR or do you think that the two of those technologies are divergent enough, different enough that, uh, they're really they the two separate things that you shouldn't talk about them in the same breath.
1: Look, I'm a I'm a lawyer and a business guy, so that question's probably better posed to an engineer. Um, I'll just give you my point, which is I think about it as spatial. I think about all of it as spatial computing. Obviously, uh, AR is when you when you like you know augment in the existing world with it, with with images, and VR is where you take over you take over and render an entire world so at core i think a lot of the computing is very similar i feel like the truth is if you pick up an oculus quest it's a really great ar device as well when you're setting up your borders and doing that kind of stuff so it feels like over time um they're going to be dual purpose devices but i think that's all just normal normal part of the tech tech adoption chain
2: gotcha gotcha I also wanted to ask about,
0: uh, oh, no, Remy, go ahead. I was just, I have a question here. So when you ha- get, have a chance, I'm just going to jump in with one.
2: Sure. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, your opinion on direct to consumer, uh, sort of uh, creation for applications or uh, business to business. Uh, do you believe that, uh, VR arcades, uh, have more promise than uh, individual users picking up their own VR devices? Uh, do you think that consumer adoption is going to overtake those sort of like things? Uh, things like a uh, dreamscape or other like a uh, VR arcades, quote unquote, uh, uh, what do you think that the, the business is really leading towards?
1: I mean, look, for us, we just love VR. We love it to our core. We are long on VR. Any, any experience which is going to draw people into trying VR, uh, we think is gonna be a great opportunity to get them back to trying it again. Um, and so we sort of wish, we, we hope everyone in our industry is successful.
2: Uh I guess one more question for me, if you don't mind, Ted. No, go ahead, dude. I'm just just wanted to let you know. Sure. Any any VR experience that you personally would love, uh just for yourself. Uh oh. not looking at sort of like in you know, a market uh uh market uh rates or anything like that, but like you personally, if you could have your perfect VR experience, what would it be? Oh god.
1: No one ever asks the lawyer that question. <laughs> <laughs> and probably for a good reason. You know what? I would lo- I lo- I love to leave that leave that to the creative people in my company who are incredibly talented because the truth is that uh they've all dreamed up stuff that I probably would have dreamed up has been really magical for me. Um mm, mm. I will say that I will say that um I think what's going to be really exciting over time is just the notion of being existing and playing in VR. And having it be like having the when, once you get enough liquidity of eyeballs to really having, you know, the ability to have seamless experiences, like I was saying, like really starting to create intense social networks built around gaming, I think is going to be
2: magical in VR. Uh, Ted, I can take a little bit of break if you want to ask a question.
0: Uh, yeah, I was just thinking, like, a funny VR game would be, like, actual realistic courtroom simulator where it's just, like, a lot of, like, listening to – like, not a lot. There's, like, no outbursts. If you make an outburst, the bailiff takes you away for contempt. <laughs> that would be that would be a great VR game.
1: Um, so your idea for a game is to have you sit silently and if you speak, to have somebody take you out of the room?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, I just think that would be that would be that would be hilarious because like you see all these courtroom dramas like on TV and movies and stuff and they're never how actual courtrooms are you know um no they're never how that's that is accurate <laughs> so I was thinking like accurate courtroom simulator it's just very dry you have a lot of notes you have these like ca- these like tubs full of evidence <laughs>
1: yeah uh, I, I guess for me there's a reason people watch court courtroom Courtroom shows on TV, but don't actually show up to watch real court cases.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I just watched uh, this movie on a plane. Uh, it's Robert Downey Jr. and The Judge. Have you seen that one? I have not. Okay. Okay. Here's, here's a fun question. My dad, he's a lawyer too. He does uh, municipal law. He's worked for the San Diego – he worked for the San Diego County Water Authority for like 30 years. Um, he can't fucking stand watching – Courtroom movies and shows because of how inaccurate they are. Does it bother you the same, or do you enjoy the entertainment factor of uh, watching court shows? Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I love. I love. Look, I
1: I have to admit, I love the law. I love reading about the law. I think it's fascinating. I think there's so much human drama that unplays that that plays out <laughs> within the court w- within it. And so yeah, I mean, there's some of my favorite movies are law movies, <laughs> and actually. I'll just give uh, an old shout-out. If you like an old, old, old movie, there's a movie called Anatomy of a Murder, which
3: is probably the best legal movie ever made.
0: Ooh, I'll have to check it out. I haven't, I haven't seen that one. How old are we talking here?
1: Is, oh, it,
3: uh, is it better than My Cousin Vinny? Because that's pretty high uh, bar.
1: My Cousin Vinny's awesome. And actually, I had a law school professor who assigned us to watch My Cousin Vinny, which was amazing. Um, but uh, it, is, uh, it is, I think, better. Not as funny though.
3: <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> uh, wait, wait. I the first have to... First to look it up for you. Was was uh, nineteen
0: fifty nine? Oh wow, that is old. Although my dad would be like, "That's not that old." Anyways. Yeah. Okay, back to my serious question because this is a very serious podcast for real professionals. Um, so with the the amount that the VR tech has changed in just like like what the Oculus uh original consumer model came out in what 2016 i believe and um i know the dev kit came up before that but the market has changed like so much in like such a short period of time that developers like i, I so i just did a video on narcosis it was a, a vr game that uh was like a seated controller based vr game and now like the VR games that we see coming out nowadays are like, you know, walking dead saints and sinners or bone works with like all these motion controls and stuff. But the beginning, like you didn't really have the, 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 the development kit didn't really have those motion controllers and stuff. And it's, it's made the, 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 games that we see coming out of VR wildly different in a very short period of time. So as an indie developer, indie projects can take several years to finish isn't it risky for them to get into this marketplace now when the chances are that by the time the game is done, the market has completely shifted? Look, that's, that's an evaluation. Every company has to make for itself for
1: us. Like I said, we're focused on, we're long on VR. Um, We think we are, if not the best, one of the best companies in the world and enabling presence and, and helping the wish fulfillment that people seek for VR. And so, um, yeah, life is risky, business is risky, but but, but if you keep waiting for a perfect opportunity or to have complete knowledge, you'd never do anything.
0: Yeah, well, that's true. But you see what I mean, though, right? Like, especially for some guy that's just like, like – if I'm like a one- to three-person studio, like it can be really, really risky, especially in, in, with the, the shifting market. Yeah, I mean, look.
1: I think there's examples in the early days of VR, very small, very small teams building games that sort of caught on. Um, And certainly VR can be risky, but honestly, I don't know anything a one to three person studio could do that wouldn't be risky.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Other than (laughs) another haunted house simulator, 7,015. Yeah, sure. But I mean,
1: even that, like you have, you know, if you if you're a very small studio starting out, it's if you're any small business by the way, not just video game studios. Um, if you're a small business starting out, it's risky. It's yep. why it's why we celebrate the stories of all these great businesses that were started by a couple people in garages, but we don't talk about all the businesses that were started in garages and didn't make it, right? right like right. Not not everybody gets to start Google or Facebook or or Microsoft. Mhm.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking like you know, you as a as a COO, like let's imagine that that Servios had like a big downturn. You had to downsized down to like ten employees, and you're you're looking at what you want to do with the next VR project. Like a lot of games right now are doing this model where um they release like a a polished kind of demo version. You know, like uh, if you have a larger idea for a game, instead you'll release one room of that game in VR, and then that's like the quote early access. So, you know, for you as a business guy, like from a business standpoint, a lot of these smaller studios, uh, they choose to release their games as, you know, like a demo version bundle that'll be in like early access. So they have this idea for like uh, a 10 hour game, but they'll release a 30 minute really polished chunk into early access and then like slowly release it over time. And that there's like a way that like helps bring in funds, but it also like, it also creates consumer expectations that are harder to hit. So I'm just kind of curious, like from you with this, you know, larger size studio, not the EA size, but bigger than five dudes in their basement, yeah. you know, what are the pros and cons of that business structure and model?
1: You know, it it's, it just hasn't been the, it just hasn't been at least recently the model we've chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think it's so specific to each game and each studio and what you're trying to achieve uh, that it's just, I don't, I don't have a great way to talk about it generally without having a particular product in mind. And I think that's true of a mark, like, cause at core, what you're talking about is really a marketing plan, right? How do I bring my product to market? Uh, what's the most efficient way. And that depends on assuming that depends on your availability of resources. Um, what's right for the product, how you want to build an audience. And I think there's various ways to bring products to market. And it's not one size fits all. And yeah. so I feel like you just kind of have to have that conversation in context of, of, you know, what what do I want to achieve? What are my resources? And how do I best sort of solve this problem?
0: Yeah. No, and I, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, video games in general are a new market as opposed to like film, which has been around for like 100 years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, so there's, there's questions of like how do we bring – video games to market because the, the old school style of trailers and stuff was built out of the film, the television era where the, the, the trailer was essentially a demo for the movie. And now we're like, have these, these questions of, okay, do we release demos for the game? Do we release early access buy-ins? What's that going to do? And, and then we have VR come around, which is like the newest of the new tech. And there's even more questions of how do we market? How do we develop? You know, what do we try to shoot for? Uh, is it in, I, I just find all these questions to be fascinating. I agree. And,
1: yeah. I agree. I'll just say that like, yes, film is a really old market, but I would sort of challenge the fact that that tech is having more of an impact on how video games are, are released in films. And so like, I'll give you an example of that. Like if you, if you went to like, let's take an old movie, like I was talking about in 1959 or even before that um, we're talking about there were movies that were released before people had air conditioning. So literally people would buy tickets to double features because they wanted to sit in a cool room and be entertained.
3: Right? right. That was a
1: big piece of the marketing thing for film. And there were studios that owned movie theaters and basically just had factories <laughs> where they use content that was very like serialized. Right. And they would just keep kind of doing the same thing over and over uh, and creating a lot of content. Fast forward. Uh, there was the age of the blockbuster that was like bought on by Jaws. Right. Where, um, where where, uh, where really you define like big opening weekends. And that model still follows to some extent. There are obviously big studios like Disney make Marvel movies, which have huge opening ma- weekends and make billions of dollars at the box office. But the indie film business is very, very different, right? Like Incredibly different. The way you want to bring those movies to market has been incredibly, incredibly impacted by the fact that, Younger movie, the younger people don't go to movies as much. They certainly don't go to watch small dramas at the movie theater. There's no reason to get them to pay the movie prices or to go out for that. And so you look at streaming services like Amazon and Netflix, right, are where a lot of those stories are being told. A lot of where those movies are being made now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that technical innovation of streaming video, right, and the additional – entertainment options that video games have provided and the internet had provided and other things have provided have really radically impacted the movie business. Now, let's say games aren't that different. You have huge blockbuster hits, right. That are that move hardware for major console makers all the way down to sort of very casual games at mobile. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are all really broadly in the video game business in the same way that, you know, uh, infinity war is in the movie business and so is moonlight mm-hmm. right but right yeah it's the same
0: industry, but they're their, completely different movies
1: yeah to try to talk about those products and say there's any similarity about how you market them seems like a ridiculous exercise to
0: me yeah no and i i, I do think it's um yeah i mean it is it is inherently ridiculous, but it is, you know, the questions that we have to ask as members of this marketplace, you know? No, no,
1: no, I know. But I said, like, the question is, like, and it's where you kind of have it. It's where I think it's sort of interesting to have is, you know, hey, here's a case study. You released this specific game in this way. Was that the right decision or have you released it in a different way? Yeah. So right? ha- yeah, that have a more substantive real conversation about what I think you're getting at, which right. is in the modern world, how do you find an audience for great content? Because right, right. if you don't create great content, all bets are kind of off. Who cares, right? Like we're all in this business to entertain people and to create emotional connections and, and to have, people, you know, to have, to have, uh, to create great experiences for people. So if you don't do that, forget it. But once you do that, the question is, what's the best way I can bring this to market? And really you're helping your audience by doing a good job of that. Because the people who love your content are going to get to experience more of it if you do that effect.
0: So with the, the upcoming release of Half-Life Alex, are you guys at Servios happy that that's coming out because it's going to move more people to VR? Or are you nervous because it's gonna, you're a word that's going to raise the bar of development costs for VR games? Again, like for us? We are long on VR.
1: Anything that brings eyeballs to VR, we think we're one of the best companies in the world at making great VR content, and so that's good for us. We're rooting for everybody right
0: now. Okay, cool. Um, Those are the questions I have, so you guys, it's open to Jesse or Remy if you guys want to keep going.
2: Ooh, do I have any more questions about VR and everything like that? The... I think I'm good. Um... You see any way that VR can uh, can really uh, what you call it innovate on uh, other industries right now, uh, other than gaming?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I think VR and it's not our business, right? Not our core business, but like v- VR sort of tra- like you can imagine all sort of training and industrial uses that are really important for VR, or anything that connects connects people. Um, where they have a little more intimate connection than just a conference call, for instance, I think is is super interesting. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think there's going to be a lot of ways uh, VR connects people, but really it's just another way to enable human interaction. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of it, and and that's why I'm so long on it at core. Like, why wouldn't a great dynamic way to enable human action, interaction work and put in the hands of really, really talented people like we have at our studio. Um, over time, I think that's going to really take hold. And that's sort of been, that's sort of, by the way, been the history of entertainment.
2: Definitely. Uh, I, it's kind of a funny story. I kind of like telling you, I lost a job. I was working uh, for a company who wanted to make the, the VR conference room, right? Uh, and I met up with them the second time. And uh, afterwards, I was shaking everyone's hands and I, I made the offhand comment saying, it's funny that we meet in person every time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they told me not to come back after that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway. Um, Max, uh, I think we got to wrap up here because we're, we're going. Uh, we just had an hour. It's funny because I don't even realize we we're talking for an hour. It's just like I always love talking about this kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, I really enjoyed
1: it. Thank you guys so
0: much for making yeah. it. For including me yeah and i just you know i think it's cool to talk to guys like you that show that you know the industry and i say this on a lot of our episodes the industry isn't just the programmers it isn't just the graphics artists it isn't just the designers there's so many people that work towards making this giant complex industry uh, really work and um so i just wanted to thank you for coming on man um it was a pleasure having you um thank you guys Um, yeah guys thank you so much for, yeah guys thank you so much for listening in uh, once again this is Ted with real professional if you liked what you heard here today go ahead and listen to our previous episodes this is I think episode 15 so we got 14 more for you to listen to uh, some of them good and uh, if you like them go ahead and just follow us on SoundCloud follow us on Twitter uh, and you know just, just leave a comment let us know what you want to hear in the future because that's the only way we're going to know what you guys want other than the analytics which uh, clearly what you want is more dry conversations about uh, video game logistics and stuff because those are the ones that do the best so uh, anyways uh, thank you all for tuning in and uh, bye you know I never understood that why
3: did you judge me why did you judge me you killed the innocent the to an end you started. I caused the revolution. You betray the law.